Let's start with Stephen Esposito then. Here on the Wintrust Business Lunch, John Williams, Pete Zimmerman, the producer. Thanks for joining us. Stephen is the president and managing partner at Yellowstone Wealth Management in Lake Forest. Hi, Stephen. Welcome back to the show. Hi, John, and thank you for having me. You um, noted maybe historically where the markets are and which direction they're going. What's your point about all of that, Stephen? Uh, the markets, you know, we're seeing the rotation we talked about. It continues to gain momentum now into the value. Today you're getting a move in the tech because of some earnings reports, and I think a lot of short covering. Um, but I think the cyclicals will do well, and the Fed was, uh, shall we say, sanguine yesterday. Um, that helped the market. In general, it's been a great a great first few weeks of the market, and I think it's got more room to go. I really do. And what I was referring to is you say, as goes January, so too goes the year almost always. What's the number on that? Well, actually, that, that's, you know, uh, we, I've, we've had, it's not always like that. But, for example, where it's unique, a statistic we have, is if the market was down the prior year, and January was up at least 5% at the end of the month, that's only happened five times in history. And in those five times, uh, the market finished, the S&P, I'm referring to the S&P, finished up at least 20% that year. So, again, only five times in history where the market was down the year before, and that January was up at least 5%. You saw the market finish the year at least up 20%, mm-hmm. and the highest was 45 So that's a nice stat, whether that holds true this year, and it's starting out pretty good. Um, that's a pretty interesting number, I thought. Only five times in history. Pretty low sample size, though, <laughs> if nothing else. But if we're down 20% the previous year and up 5%. No, if you're down at all. Down at all. Down at all, John. And if you're up in January, then... At least five. Then you then that, that has always been a, a predictor, if you will, of how well mm-hmm. you'll do the year. And you've always done very well. Well, in this case, yeah, where, yeah you'd be up 2% that wouldn't fit into that that example, but if you finish up at least 5% for January the yeah. following year, um, then the market finished, the S&P finished up in all five instances, no less than 20 and as high as 45%. So let's hope it holds true. Let's hope that continues this year and keeps that, that trend going. I saw, I, yeah, I, amen to that. Although one wonders if it isn't just kind of anecdotal. It's sort of like how the Super Bowl predicts the markets or the markets tell you if it's going to be an AFC or NFC champion. You know, you wonder if, if those things are really connected. What are the most important trends to you right now? What, what is happening that might predict the future? I think we had a, obviously, people know how bad the year was last year in general. Um, really, uh, you had three years of unprecedented market crashes, bond market crashes, you name it, um, commodities. But you're seeing... As we talked last time, I think we can have a perfect landing, um, not necessarily by design, but by, you know, just happenstance, because what you're seeing now is the consumer continues to stay strong. The, you know, the consumers, companies are doing well, and they're always so cheap is why we talk about buying them all, all in the last 12 months. And then the tech sector just got hit, and now it's starting to rebound. So I think in general, um, the economy is going to do great. I don't really see a recession, and we we talked about the possible of transitory inflation, and I said my de- it depends on your length of time definition. Um, and we talked about this in the quarter, first quarter of last year and into the year. Um, and by this time, I thought you'd see the inflation numbers start to come down, and they're coming down hard. And I think by April, you could see a real dramatic possible change of tune for the Fed, which would give the market some more room to go, specifically, um, I think, in all sectors at that point. But I would still stick with companies who make money, at reasonable valuations. Don't go back to the zombie stocks. I, I wouldn't. 
I would stay with companies who make money and are a reasonable valuation. Your definition of a zombie stock is? Companies that maybe have, you know, billion, three billion, $10 billion market values with no earnings. Um, I, I believe in buying profits and earnings. And if those other stocks go up, God bless them. I don't, I don't want to be in that. My clients aren't those type of what's clients. An example like of, what's an example of one of those? Well, if you would have looked in the past, like the Peloton, let's say, you know, I'm not talking about Peloton today or tomorrow, but if you look at where it was a couple of years ago at $170 a share with no real profit, and the stock I think is what, 12 or 15 now? Uh, there's a lot of those. There was a lot of the new new IPO yeah. companies that came out in AI and various different, a whole bunch of them. And the other side of it is you can own a company that's successful and profitable, but just don't pay 50 or 100 or 70 times earnings. Well, I, that would seem I to average be a, multiples. Because Peloton's a good product. I mean, I, I think that's a viable company. I don't know if they've overstaffed right. or understaffed. Maybe they, and it sure sounds like they were overvalued, but I think that's a going that's concern. Well, that was, your, that was the word you used, overvalued. I mean, look what you're paying for a dollar of earnings, what you're paying for a dollar of revenue, and stay with reasonable multiples as if you were doing a, tri- a private transaction. The unfortunate part is most people look to the market for entertainment. Rather than, you know, like when a client comes in and new and I'll say, listen, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to hopefully make you money in a prudent manner. Um, but I don't I don't try to buy those kind of companies that you talk about one up 300 percent on Wednesday. I mean, I'd love it to happen, but I'm, I'm just a more prudent wealth manager. That's that's why I'd rather be. Stephen Esposito is the president managing partner of Yellowstone Wealth Management in Lake Forest. Yellowstone right. WM is the website. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about this Netflix thing with Joan Salzman, the senior reporter at CNET. Joan, welcome back. We talked earlier in the show today about this plan that they rolled out in South America in a few countries and that they might institute in the first quarter of this year, which would limit the use of a Netflix password to a household and that you're going to have to pay extra if you share the password. That's a fair read on it, right? It's it's totally a fair read, except the only um, correction I would make is that it's not a might they roll this out worldwide. It's a definitely they're going to roll this out worldwide. Netflix has identified or estimated that more than 100 million accounts um, are opportunities for this um, sub-account password sharing fee policy that they're going to be rolling out. And they, you're right, they've said that they're going to start this rollout within the next two months before the end of the the end of the first quarter. We don't know yet. They're going to start with certain selections of countries and then widen from there. We don't know which countries are going to be getting this broadening of the test that they've already been doing. We don't know which countries are going to be getting it first, how quickly that total global rollout is going to be. We don't know how hard they're going to enforce these policies, but they already know it's not going to be popular. <laughs> Well, I wonder, so if I'm sharing a password, say I, we have it at my house, and then say my son in another state has it, I wonder if suddenly his is going to go dark. Will they switch off his access to the Netflix account, which is tethered to my home? They have the technology right, to right. do that, I guess, huh? Yeah, I mean, Netflix, Netflix terms of service have always been that you're supposed to use your account within one household, one domicile, you know. Um, But up until last year, the company, like, you know, the company has tweeted things like love is password sharing. Like they always 
when they didn't have as many competitors, they were always very lax about enforcing that part of their terms of service. But now what it seems like is basically, John, yes, if you have a son or another family member or a friend or an ex-girlfriend's boss's cousin who's using your password at a different location, it seems like what they're going to do based on what they've been testing in Costa Rica, Peru, and Chile is basically using IP addresses and other factors, identify what is your home Wi-Fi network. And if it sees that, um, so long as you like log in and start watching Netflix on that home Wi-Fi network on your TV, on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer, once about once a month, it seems like you won't have any trouble. It's when there are devices that go longer than about a month um, that they may start creating these roadblocks to keep watching. Like right, because they're assuming, that, that, yeah. they're, they're assuming that maybe the person with whom you are sharing isn't using it as often as you are, or, or maybe you are that person, but after 31 days, they're going to essentially turn off your account and you have to log back in, which might stop the illegal sharing, but what a bite in the ass for somebody who just didn't use it for a month, right? Well, yes, but first caveat is we don't know exactly how much the way that they've tested it in Latin America is going to be how it rolls out globally. So it could be totally different. And two, they're not going to shut down. It seems like if they keep with what they stuck, what they were trying in Latin America, they won't shut down the account. They will block the device that hasn't connected to that home Uh, Wi-Fi network. Okay. In the 31 days. So it's not like your account will suddenly go dark. It's only the device that appears to be watching from somewhere that's not the place where most people are always watching. Okay, but the household, I think, could be defined by people as it's my immediate family, but one, of my, but my son's in mm-hmm. college out of state. Would he then have to pay the satellite fee? The He would be a guest user of my account then? Yeah, that's where the devil is in the enforcement. We just don't know. Technically, yes. Technically, if the person doesn't live with you and, you know, and it's not you just traveling somewhere else, um, going somewhere, if one account is using, routinely using um, and streaming from two different locations that are significantly far away, then yeah, Netflix could block one of those locations there. But it all comes down to just how much they're going to balance monetizing account sharing against really, really, you know, annoying its customers because nobody's going to like this once it starts rolling out. What do you think the satellite fee, the the guest user fee is going to be per month? Yeah. So the way that they're, they're calling them sub accounts, basically if you have a profile on someone's account, you can transfer it off onto um, a new sub account, which would cost less than the cheapest tier of Netflix, but they haven't said how much it will cost based on the tests in Latin America. If you go by an average of what they've been charging there, it would cost roughly a quarter of the price of Netflix standard plan, which is its uh, most popular plan. That in the U.S. that that roughly equates to like three fifty to four dollars a month. But it's entirely possible they come up with a different fee structure. There's no way to really know. Okay, but if I've got five people sharing my account, they would each have to pay Netflix three or four dollars to use right. my account. Um, I'll let people decide if that's a fair deal or not, but that that some version of that might be coming our way. And if it does, it might be coming our way. Well, you said it will be happening, and the guess is by April 1st, right? Yeah, Netflix said it wants to start this global rollout uh, before April 1st. 
Um, we don't know if the U.S. is going to be one of the first territories. Since the U.S. is, the U.S. and Canada just themselves are bigger, I think, than any other market yeah. that they have. Yeah. Europe and um, the Middle East are bigger as a region, but as a, like, a country and a market, U.S. and Canada are their single biggest one, and so they have a lot to lose if they really come out big year and end up making everybody mad. So we'll just have to wait and see how it rolls out, but there, it's definitely coming, so people should start preparing. Okay, Joan. Yeah, uh, make it make a list of who your best friends are, and then your middle tier <laughs> friends, and then your sub friends right. because they're out. Joan Salzman is a senior reporter at CNET. Read more at cnet.com. Out of time today, Joan, but thanks for going deep on that with us. No problem. Great to talk to you, John. John Williams here. Michael Edwards is the president and CEO of the Chicago Loop Alliance. LoopChicago.com is their website. We regularly have this conversation with these folks about how much people are using the downtown. So, Michael, let's check in and get the report. What are the trends? Oh, great. Good afternoon, John. Yeah, what are the trends? What are you seeing? Well, things uh, continue to uh, move in, the, in, in a good direction. Um, this past quarter, this is a report for the last quarter of 2022, and our data shows that... Um, uh, the recovery was really led by theaters, uh, increase in public transportation, and investment in the loop. And we're on track like uh, many other large cities across the country. So give me some numbers. So uh, theaters are really a major driver of the economic activity in the loop. And we saw over 700,000 people here in the quarter and $190 million worth of economic impact. And uh, creating a lot of activity into the evening, um, which, um, which is terrific. Uh, you know, downtown is much more of a social hub, social district than a business district at the moment. And so we are the center for arts and entertainment, mm -hmm. dining. We have a thriving residential neighborhood. And, of course, the students are all back. So there's 50, almost 60,000 students uh, in the loop every day. Boy, we don't we think about that. Um, I have a quick question, yeah. though, about all of that. Um, it's hard to believe that you get $190 million in economic impact from the theater district in, in one mm -hmm. quarter. Is that how you are calculating this? Yes, so one quarter. Well, we did a study, John, you know, a few years ago, and the, the annual impact of the theaters, and this is money people spend on tickets. It's also a percentage of the money people spend for babysitting and for food and beverage before and after you know, it, it takes in a lot of things, and then there's of course tertiary economic impact, and it's over uh, uh, it's over two billion dollars annually. It's the second largest uh, arts and uh, culture district in the nation behind Times Square. It's a major driver of our economic how, activity, how does, and we're very thankful what? to have it. A lot of cities don't. No kidding. Well, um, how does that compare to 2019? Say 2022. Uh, it, everything's up. I mean, the theaters were were closed you know, at the beginning of 2021. So, um, sure. But I don't know. No, you understand my better. question to be clear. Um, the, the numbers that you're showing us now, how does it compare to pre pandemic? Um, do you know what I mean? Like how, what percentage of the theater business is back compared to its peak in 2018 or 2019 before the pandemic? Well, I think that they're back, you know, near capacity, I would say. You know, there's the, all of the shows are back. You know, uh, they, they've all, uh, almost all of them have a full schedule of um, uh, theater and events and mm -hmm. concerts and those kind of things. So they're all back on schedule and people are turning out. You know, I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for arts and culture when people couldn't go out to the theater yeah. or to a concert or the orchestra. What about hotel occupancy then? How does that compare to 2019? 
Yeah, so mid- midsummer last year, we were at 100% of 2019 levels, and we we're kind of back. Of course, everything starts to fall off a little bit from a hotel and visitor perspective in the winter months. So our fourth quarter was still at 85 percent of the 2019 levels. Mm. So we're not back totally, but we're back way better than we were the year before. Can you tell me about, I don't know, occupancy rates in the business sector? Um, How many office people are back or how much business is being transacted downtown? Sure. So we have um, we have we use the castle key cards. Many of your listeners probably use them to access their offices. And so they send out a, a national number and then break it up into different cities. And so ours is really Chicago land. It's not just the loop. So it's a little bit higher and they're reporting. It's probably a little bit higher than than um, than is actually happening in the loop. So currently it's at about 54 percent. So we're something just under 50 percent yeah. occupancy. And, and a large part of that, John, as you know, is Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, but that being said, one of our other indicators is that the uh, CTA trains are at 73 percent of 2019 levels. And I know personally the brown line is packed. Like it's hard <laughs> to get a seat. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've got friends that are standing up on the red line sometimes, and I was happy to see mm-hmm. the CTA buses going up and down Columbus Avenue, for instance, near where we were. Mm-hmm. And yes. that was uh, SRO on the bus, just like the good old days. <laughs> what about pedestrians and foot traffic? It, you don't see as many people at the intersections waiting for the light as you used to. Do you have right. a way to track so that? Yeah, sure. So we have pedestrian counters on State Street, and we have a couple on Michigan Avenue, sort of by the water, uh, by the river, and by uh, the uh, theater. I'm sorry, the uh, art gallery. And so on State Street, we were, at in the fourth quarter, we were at uh, 75% of um, our 2019 numbers. And, of course, around the holidays, that all went up with Chris Kindle Market and all the great things going on downtown. So we were at 85% over the sort of the holiday season, if you will. And on Michigan Avenue, they're actually exceeding 2019 levels um, around the Riverwalk and, the, you know, the bridge over the Riverwalk. So people are downtown. They are moving around. They are looking for some of the things that they know and love. And um, I think that all, you know, is a, is a, is a good thing. Uh, was it Old Navy that announced that they're going to close their State Street yeah. store? Can you talk about the retail health downtown? Yes. So retail, of course, struggles. You know, it's really a reflection of a robust economy and density of people. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, Old Navy went out, but that was in the works for quite a while. But it's a, you know, it's a hundred dollar corner. I think that that will be leased out rather quickly. I'd be surprised if it wasn't leased out very quickly. We've had retail open during the pandemic. Primark is here, uh, and a couple of uh, discounters are here. And then we're really pleased to hear that um, Off Fifth, Saks Off Fifth, is closed their store and now they're reopening it. So uh, they're, they're back or they will be back shortly. So retail is spotty, uh, as all your listeners probably are aware. Um, but we have some really good stuff on, on State Street. Plenty of vacancies, but we're working on those. Yeah. What can you do about that? What is it? Do you just have to wait well, for the, the world is, to change? That's a great question. The, you know, the city's really stepped up. So they have two programs, one of which we participated in. One is to find, um, you know, young entrepreneurs or smaller businesses and, and put together, and we did over at the holidays, put together a holiday market in the old DSW space. That's happening in districts all over the city, and the city provided funding for that. Uh, the other one that they have is to put artists or art in windows to sort of activate them, and you know, while we're waiting for tenants to show up. And so we have a 
a program called LaSalle Aglow, and there's about um, 20 windows that are um, aglow. They're lit up at night, and they'll be lit up at night through March. So we're excited about that program. Uh, one last question. Um, I think some of us miss some of our favorite restaurants downtown still. Um, can you talk about the restaurant business, new restaurants coming, old restaurants closing? How healthy is that market? Well, we have restaurant tours that are our members, and um, many of them are report are very robust, and it's really a reflection of the health of the theaters. So, if you, you know, if you want to get a dinner reservation within six blocks of um, the theater district and Broadway and Chicago's great shows, it's really tough. It's really hard to get a reservation, and so I think the combination of that experience has really been very helpful to the restaurants. We've lost a few. We've gained a few. We were talking to Remingtons, for example. We, we had our staff Christmas party last week. Yeah. And uh, they reported their fourth quarter was better than 2019. So people are back, and they're eating. Uh, well, it's just the best kind of people. Michael Edwards is the president <laughs> and CEO of the Chicago Loop Alliance. Okay, keep doing what you're doing, Michael, and uh, let's uh, check in again in a couple months, okay? Great. Thank you, John. You can read that stuff at loopchicago.com. Let's uh, catch you up on more business news. Here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. BMO Harris Bank is doing away with the Harris name later this year. The name has been a fixture in Chicago banking for more than 100 years. The Toronto-based parent company made the decision after acquiring Bank of the West in San Francisco. The newly merged company will be called BMO Bank of North America. The Harris name not only goes back more than a century, but customers also have fond memories of the bank's mascot, Hubert the Lion. BMO is now the 13th largest commercial bank in the U.S. Another Illinois company is trimming its workforce. State Farm Insurance will lay off 451 workers. The Bloomington-based company has filed its plans with the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. The cuts are just a small percentage of the insurer's nearly 53,000 global workforce. The other companies announcing job cuts include Groupon, which is shedding 500 jobs, Uber Freight laying off 150 people, and Rivian reducing its workforce by 6%. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. We've got the business of food for you now. Here's Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you. And we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. And someday you could be driving that Silverado down a street or highway paved with pig manure. Well, technically asphalt with its main ingredient being a binder made from pig manure instead of petroleum. A team of researchers at the University of Illinois, led by Professor Yaoi Zhang, has it figured out. Where Mother Nature turned dinosaurs and whatever into crude oil, the U of I folks can do the same with pig poop. We are engineering our reactors so mimic the Mother Nature's processes. But it's much faster, less than an hour. An hour? Something that takes Mother Nature millions of years to do? Yes. He says they'll use a hydrothermal liquefaction reactor system to change pig manure and other bio-waste into bio-crude oil, which will then be separated into fuel for transportation and a bio-binder that can be mixed with gravel to create asphalt for paving. It's all lab work right now, but he hopes they'll do some test paving by the end of 2024. And this is a project that we want to do, hopefully, on campus or, or in our town here in the Champagne area. 
Uh, there is another piece to this research. The USDA has chipped in $2.5 million to explore converting the pig manure and food waste into fertilizer. And one member of the team is experimenting with using the fertilizer to grow vegetables. As you may expect, there is no shortage of material to turn into bio-crude. In fact, his researchers are getting theirs from the university's own pig farm. That's, uh, that's easy for us to collect fresh uh, manure for the research. Oh boy, I spent a lot of time on hog farms as a kid and I feel for those folks doing the collecting. Anyway, U.S. farms produce millions of tons of agricultural waste each year, and there are millions more tons of food waste, which usually goes to landfills, and Professor Zhang points out that they are often located in or near underserved communities. He says recycling those materials and turning them into fuel and asphalt is a win for everybody, and he says it isn't just one and done. We could potentially recycle many times. Theoretically, it's forever. And that's one of the things going on at the U of I, and that's the business of food on 720 WGN. Jackie Haybind, who is the Director of Agency Relations at the Northern Illinois Food Bank. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. How are you today? I'm great. I'm glad it's warming up a little bit outside. (laughs) Does that affect the donations at a food bank, or does that affect the need at a food bank in any way? Um, I believe that it definitely affects both. Um, There's uh, many neighbors that Um, might not be employed at this time that are seeking food assistance. And so um, our winter months sometimes make that um, need greater. And our our member agencies, along with our food bank, um, are also doing distributions outdoors. So um, in many instances. And so that also um, affects the neighbors as they come out to uh, seek charitable food assistance. Yeah. Um, just talk to me very quickly, and then I want to talk to you about this map. Um, how are donations going, and how is the need going? Are there more people than in the past looking for food, and how are you handling donations? Are you getting as much as you need? Um, well, of course, we will always need more donations. I think and along with as any food bank that's out in the you know, in our country, as well as even in other countries. So we're always searching for more donations and um, willing to accept donations from the, from our, our neighbors and the community. Um, and as far as the need, right now we are seeing 40% more neighbors collectively across our service area than we were last year at this time. And we're over 50% more neighbors in need than we saw pre-pandemic. To what do you attribute that? I mean, I know inflation is high, but it seems like employment is as well. So why why the still increased need? I think um, inflation is high, which is um, taxing more more people's um, budgets, and we are seeing an increase in the amount of food that we have to purchase. Um, So that also affects our budget, you know, and as our neighbors are trying to pay, you know, for eggs, for instance, at, you know, $5 a carton currently or right around there for a while, it was even higher, um, that, that affects your budget. And just because employment is high, that doesn't mean that um, all of our our neighbors that are accessing charitable food um, might be above 
the federal poverty level, but they also might not be making enough money to make ends meet. Um, or to make good food choices. So talk to me just briefly then Absolutely. about this new map that you have, this food finder map. Um, tell me <clears throat> how it works. Well, it's a mobile-friendly device as well as it can be used on any um, any technology, you know, laptops, etc. Um, and so a neighbor can go to our website, which is solvehungertoday.org, um, and they can go to where it says Get Groceries and enter in their zip code and or their city, and they can find access to a food pantry or soup kitchen that's close to them in their community or, you know, in, in their vicinity. Hmm. Well, that's it's a, very a good friendly. idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. It's um, been brought to us by the Thayer Family Foundation. They've worked with um, our food bank as well as Greater Chicago Food Depository and other food banks in Illinois, Riverbend Food Bank, to um, bring this map to our neighbors that are seeking food assistance. Okay. Um, I'll ask you what else we should know before we wrap this up. It's solvehungertoday.org, then tap in your zip code. Anything else I should know about that, Jackie? Yeah, so if a neighbor needs to see the, the map in a different language, they can. Um, there is uh, an area up on the right-hand side above the map where they can change the language to a language that they speak. You still there, Jackie? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just heard a beep, and I thought, wow, we just lost her. But actually, I'm, I'm pretty much out of time now anyway, and I wanted to make sure that our audience got that. So it's solvehungertoday.org. Type in your zip code. If it's a language issue, you can also use a drop-down and actually click on the language that's best for you or someone you know, solvehungertoday.org. All right. I will right. Uh, connect again, Jackie. It's good to talk to you today. Thank you, and you have a great day.